0: Welcome to New Books in Language. Today we welcome Stephen Nadeau to talk about his recent book, The Neural Architecture of Grammar, in which he sets out a theory of the relation between linguistic structures and their neural underpinnings. In this interview, we talk about some of the challenges of mapping between linguistics and neuroscience, the nature of concept representations in the brain, and the evidence from aphasia that supports a network-based account of language structure. And we consider how findings about neural structure might inform the treatment of patients with language disorders. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Stephen Nadeau of the University of Florida College of Medicine about his book, The Neural Architecture of Grammar, in which he motivates and proposes a neurally inspired theory of language functions. Steve, how did this work come about?
1: Well, it's been a long time in the writing, and it it really goes back, uh, I think, to before my, my fellowship when I was fascinated with language, and and who wouldn't be. Um, I did my fellowship in behavioral neurology, and uh, from the perspective of a behavioral neurologist, uh, language just provides a a picture window to the goings-on in the brain. It's the the widest, broadest window there is. Um, One of the things that really bothered me, however, this is back in the uh, early 80s, was how on earth you could take uh, a function as complex as language and how that could be represented in brain tissue that was composed of these little tiny units, neurons, uh, membranes, uh, the material within, uh, action potentials, these long... Uh, extended spidery connections up to 10,000 connections from one neuron to others. How on earth could you go from that kind of living tissue to a function-like language? And at the time, I think uh, people said, uh, well, have have faith, my son. One day we will know. Well, it came sooner than I thought with uh, uh, an epical book by David Rummelhart, Jay McClellan, and uh, others uh, that were called the PDP Research Group. that came out in uh, 1986-1987. And that uh, book really uh, revealed the essential clue to how a complex function could be represented in neural structure. That is, as a a function of population-encoded representations. And this whole concept of PDP, parallel distributed processing, um, is wound up with population encoded representations. This can be viewed as uh, a little tiny uh, subdomain of chaos theory. And for the most part, uh, chaos theory is uh, about the processes that Enable order to emerge from the interactions of large numbers of simple units uh, each following its own little set of rules um, With no absolutely no vision of the the larger entity Um, So for example the cells in one's hand those cells no cell has a clue what a hand looks like never had and yet Over the course of development of the fetus, this marvelous structure uh, develops simply by each one of those cells following uh, its own uh, rules. So all living creatures, uh, the order that we see in them reflects chaotic order. Uh, Even the process of of evolution reflects uh, chaotic order. Perhaps this concept of Gaia, of of a a world that uh, has this Interactive process that's homeostatic uh, reflects chaotic uh, order, so getting back to the brain, a population representation is a representation that uh, exists as a pattern of activity of all of the units in that particular uh domain those units. Interact with each other heavily in a lot of the models that have been simulated on computers, each unit is connected to every other unit, and the information in these networks is in the, the connection strengths between the units, and that 's exactly as in the brain. but the information in the brain is in in the synapses the connections between uh, neurons so all of a sudden, once we understand this this amazing parallel between Populations of units that can be simulated on a computer and the organization of the brain—that's our connection. That's how we can understand how a complex function um, like language can be supported by uh, populations of of neural units. In that two-volume set, uh, in a chapter, uh, the lead author was uh, David Rumelhart, um, showed very nicely how a concept uh, could be generated as a a population uh, encoded representation. So that was the mid-1980s, and those insights provided a way of understanding how the brain supported concepts, but there were still many other ingredients um, to language beyond uh, concepts or in parallel the brain could support any other symbolic entity but languages much more than than units or symbolic entities in 1996 David Plout with Jay McClellan and I think Mark Seidenberg took up further work on a reading model that um, uh, Seidenberg and McClellan had first uh, published uh, on in 1989 and uh, the reading model uh, was a, uh, a, a simple three-level parallel distributed processing network with uh, an input uh, of graphemic units that corresponded. were in three clusters: one corresponding to uh, all possible uh, representations of the initial consonant or consonant cluster, uh, a second group representing uh, the, the possibilities for vowels, and the third group representing uh, the possibilities for the, the terminal a consonant or consonant cluster in single-syllable words. The output was phonological representations organized in the same way. So this little network was trained up on the corpus of English single Uh, syllable words, which turns out to be about uh, 3,000, and then they were able to run simulations. And the outcome measure in these simulations was equivalent to reading latency. So what the model showed is that for high-frequency words, it could read them reliably very fast. It didn't matter what kind of word it was. But for lower-frequency words, the model variously slowed down. So for words like uh, ending and uh, UST, so must, bust, trust, uh, the model was very fast. And it turns out that the reason it's fast is because UST in English is always pronounced ust. When you look at human performance on this kind of task, humans are also almost as fast reading UST words as they are high frequency words of any type. The model was very slow at other words, words like aisle and guide and fugue and yacht. And that's because the phonologic sequence of these words are unique. A network, whether artificial or in the human brain, can learn those words, but there are no regularities wired into the network that are there to take advantage of in uh, producing the word. And then in between, uh, there are some words of intermediate uh, reading latency, uh, and the word pint is a good example. So uh, it turns out INT words in, in English Uh, are all pronounced int, lint, tint, uh, flint, and so on, with that single exception of pint. So when the model reads pint, it's basically contending with a battle between these two competing pronunciations. Eventually pint wins out, but it takes time for the battle to be won. In normal English subjects, they too demonstrate intermediate latencies in reading uh, a word like pint. So this model addressed many, many issues, but a key one is that it showed how uh, a PDP model could instantiate a sequence. And that was the other huge uh, ingredient to language. So we had to be able to have representations of uh, symbolic entities, whether they're concepts or word forms or whatever, Uh, but we also had to have sequence, sequence at many levels. Uh, At the lexical level, the phonologic sequence representation of words, we had to have uh, sequence representation subsuming phrase structure and grammatical morphemes, we had to have sequence at the, at the entire sentence level. So that paper provided those first uh, clues to this, uh, to this idea of, uh, of sequence. So in uh, 2001, I would published a, a paper on uh, phonology uh, incorporating these general ideas, uh, and uh, after that it took me a long time. I thought okay uh we've got the we've got the conceptual tools we've got this this revolutionary science for relating the essential properties of neural structure to uh, a complex process uh, we 've got a vast uh, experimental literature, most importantly, a literature uh, derived from psycholinguistic studies of aphasic patients and um, I, I thought okay th- there should be there should be enough there to put together a, a book on grammar but on specifically, I mean, would really be a book on language with an emphasis on grammar. And so
0: that's how this book emerged. Indeed. Um, I have to ask, because it's something that comes up often from a linguistic point of view when we're talking about the parallel distributed processing work, there seems to be a lot of, or a certain amount of skepticism among linguists as to whether the, the models are in fact neurally plausible in some sense, possibly because the, the specific models make assumptions about the way in which nodes are labelled, for example, what the nodes mean in these networks. Uh, you discuss this later in the book, page 166, as to whether uh, PDP models are actually, you know, can actually be called models of the brain, and, and you argue that they can. Do you feel that linguists have been too resistant to um, discussions of these kinds of models? Well,
1: I think on this particular question, like just about every, every important scientific question, the devil is in the details. So if we look at uh, PDP models, what they have in common is this concept of population representation uh, and uh, the concept that's um, invoked by pattern associator networks, uh, networks that uh, convert a particular representation from one form, uh, for example semantic, to another form, for example uh, phonologic. So in those two respects, uh, parallel distributed processing uh, appears to faithfully replicate brain structure and function. Now. Individual PDP models should be understood as a hypothesis. It's a hypothesis about the the existence of this particular uh, function in the brain, its organization and, and localization. Uh, that hypothesis is susceptible to uh, testing, and like all uh, hypothesis-based research, it's, it's win-win. I mean, if the hypothesis is supported, great. If it's not supported, then it tells you, okay, w- what alternative will uh, account for the observations? So, you know, if, if linguists are criticizing PDP because uh, it, it doesn't faithfully replicate uh, all of the, the the fine nuances of neuronal function in the cortex, uh, it's fair, but it, it's also fair to say that neuroscience at its best really hasn't uh, a clue as to how this six-layered cerebral cortex really, really operates. But it certainly does appear to incorporate the population-encoding uh, representation. Um, I, I think... For linguists to take a particular PDP model and say, "Well, it's got this problem, it's this problem, this problem," and therefore the whole PDP concept is is just not plausible and should be taken seriously. Well, of course, the these these models have individually have lots of uh, problems. I mean, that's that's science. So, you know, we move on, we we address the problems piece by piece, and we refine the model, but. At core now, we have overwhelming evidence of the the fundamental validity and brain terms of these models. We also have an incredible body of of, uh, experimental studies with these models that shows two things. One, it shows uncanny and at times spooky ability of these models to replicate normal human behavior. And then we've got uh, an enormous literature on these models that when they're damaged as if they had experienced a stroke or as if they had they were afflicted with semantic dementia that they uncannily uh, reproduce the the behavior of affected uh, patients. Um, In a broader sense the introduction of these models coupled with understanding of neuroanatomy Enables us to reestablish a dialectic between uh, the, the our theoretical understanding of what's going on in brain at the, the micro level and and behavior. That dialectic uh, was a s- source of a- enormous strength in the behavioral neurology literature, going back to Broca and and Wernicke in the last century, uh, Jules Dejurin, uh Liepmann many others at the turn of the century that worked very well, but was limited by uh, inability to say how, you know, what was the nature of representations in the brain and what was the nature of the the translational processes, say, from semantics to uh, phonology. But PDP enables us to understand the nature of the representations and the nature of the translational processes. The the purely anatomic behavioral dialectic kind of started to lose its punch, uh, perhaps, 25, 30 years ago, and it really needed this this new science to revive it and reestablish the dialectic, and that dialectic is between experimental study of normal human subjects uh, or uh, uh, patients with brain damage and... Our, our theoretical understanding of the brain, which now incorporates both anatomy and uh, understanding of the behavior of population encoded representations, I think if linguists understood pdp in in those terms, then they would uh, understand. The core strength, but but also understand the limitations and simply accept the limitations as the limitations of of any science. I mean, we can't know everything. There's no theory that
0: accounts for everything. It's interesting that you bring up the uh, the topic of the dialectic and the the earlier theoretical work, the 19th century work, because something that struck me as, as quite a profound strength of your book is the fact that you're offering a very much more comprehensive theory or framework which, uh, if you like, meets meets some of the criticisms that might be leveled at these individual studies that they're solving a particular problem without necessary regard to the whole system. It's certainly been my impression that to bridge between neuroscience and linguistics is a great challenge because linguistics has all this or posits all this complex structure which doesn't have these very obvious neuroscientific correlates. Um, is that the Key challenge in your view
1: well I, I tried very hard to to make this uh, comprehensive and and was really inspired uh, in my efforts by work by uh, Elizabeth Bates and and Brian McWinney and and they were responsible for the, the cross-linguistic aphasia study that has so enriched our knowledge of how uh, the brain supports language by um Informing us of what happens in language breakdown uh, in many, many different languages with phenomenally different uh, grammatical structures. But uh, uh, Bates and McQuinney talked about uh, models, and I think a lot of people think about models as something that um, you could uh, make or break with a single uh, experiment uh, but actually, that's not true. If, if you've really built uh, a, a a complex model that um, uh, seeks to uh, render uh, order to uh, an entire domain, then the success or failure of the model uh, hinges n- not on one single finding, but on the ability of the model to adapt to Uh, To new uh, findings Uh, at some point even a complex model uh, Might uh, become uh, so uh, encumbered with so many exceptions and so on that uh, We end up uh, saying okay clearly. It's no good. Uh, I can think of for example uh, the the models that evolve from Kepler's work on, on astronomy and trying to account for uh, the movements of the the planets uh, and stars, uh, positing uh, an Earth-centric universe, and all these incredible, complicated uh, loop-the-loops that uh, Kepler calculated with uh, unbelievable accuracy—accuracy uh, uh, accuracy that still stands today—but uh, finally, the whole structure uh, it came came crashing down as the the, the Copernican concept replaced the the Ptolemaic concept, and we understood that. Well, goodness, if you just uh, posit that the Earth rotates around the Sun, then the loop the loops go away, and uh, we've we, we can account for this in much much more simple and, and elegant uh, terms. I, I think coming back to to linguistics, the, the counterpart to this elaborate rule making uh that is is really at the core of linguistics is the idea that uh of instantiation of regularities in neural structure uh in the course of experience and it it turns out that one of the signal strengths of of PDP models provided that some some kind of learning uh, algorithm is programmed in one of the signal strengths is to to be able to rapidly acquire uh, enormous knowledge of the regularities of the the in the data that they are, are exposed to. In fact, they are so powerful in this that neural network models are fairly often used in, in industry to to solve uh, problems that have uh, defied solution applying logical or even mathematical uh, methods. So, you know, Regularities um, and the extent to which regularities are wired into neural structure uh, depends heavily upon the, the domain, and understanding which domains admit of regularities is, is terribly important. So, for example. Uh, one domain underlying reading aloud, the the pattern associator that links uh, orthographic representations to phonologic representations. This uh, domain, this this ensemble of of connectivity, encodes uh, an enormous number of regularities that uh, reflect the the correspondences between printed word and and spoken word so a tremendous number of regularities there are an enormous number of regularities in our our knowledge of of semantics not as many as in the orthographic phonologic processor but still semantics is heavily governed by uh by regularity on the other hand uh and this is going to be something something of therapeutic significance the links, the pattern associated with the links semantic representations to phonologic representations has very, very few regularities simply because, by and large, there is little relationship between word meaning and word sound. I mentioned that that has therapeutic implications, virtually the entirety of the the Speech pathology literature involving treatment of aphasia really involves trying to train up this pattern associator that links semantics to phonology. Well, because of the intrinsic, the the, the lack of regularities in this network, Regularities cannot be leveraged in the training process. So you have the phenomenon that if you've trained a specific patient to name 100 objects, you've trained them to name 100 objects. And if you give them 101st, nothing in their experience enables them or gives them a, a leg up in naming that 101st object. There are other, are other approaches to uh Phasia therapy however that that leverage regularities in other domains to try to get around this particular limitation in the the semantic phonologic processor the business of of regularities um, we come back to to studies on linguistic research uh, i mean lim- linguistic theory going all the way back to chomsky has has posited a limited number of parametric differences between uh, languages, but recent studies that have looked at different languages have shown that they they are not consistent in o- obeying those those uh, parametric combinations. That languages are to a substantial degree idiosyncratic, and that reflects the fact that. The, the language knowledge encoded in, in in the brain of any one of us simply reflects what we've been exposed to in the course of our lives, and the language we're, we've been exposed to reflects the evolution of our particular language through history, through war and cultural change, and and migrations and and all of those things that that make the particular language we speak uh, quite individualistic. And that really is perhaps uh, England (laughs) demonstrates that uh, better than uh, any country in the world that I know of where you see important differences in language even between villages that are 30 miles apart. Um, So the counterpart to... Linguistic rules, which Chomsky posited are are native, uh, is rules that are implicit and acquired through experience because of this uh, remarkable capacity of neural network population encoded models to acquire knowledge
0: of regularities. I'd like to cut back, if I may, and talk about the way in which meaning is represented in your model. Within your model, the notion of meaning is distributed over representations of a host of distinct networks in the brain. One thing that struck me about that is that it's obviously relevant to notions like embodied cognition. Do you take a very broad definition of meaning in which all these networks are actually contributory to a notion of the meaning associated with, for example, a verb?
1: Oh, absolutely. And and let me elaborate a little bit. So, the first core meaning uh, is represented in what I refer to as granular distributed concept representations. And uh, a good example is uh, our understanding of the meaning of objects, particularly life forms uh, around us. And Uh, we can take uh, mammals as a good example. So knowledge of mammals incorporates uh, an extremely large number of of features. Um, So a a very large number of units in uh, a PDP uh, network, thousands, millions, who knows. So the representation of a particular uh, animal can be viewed as uh, a function of the activity of this of these thousands or millions of units, all acting simultaneously. So it's a function in n-dimensional hyperspace. Well, that's boggles the mind to, to even contemplate, but we can kind of cheat and do a thought experiment and slice this, take a thick slice of this n-dimensional hyperspace through the general vicinity of mammals and and represent it in a particular way. And the way that I represented in the, in the book was uh, in a space in which we've got a radius that is defined by atypicality. So, right at the center of the, the big basin that the tractor basin that corresponds to mammals are exemplars that are highly typical uh, mammals: dogs, uh, cats, horses, cows, things that we know well. And at the very periphery are highly atypical uh, mammals, a thing like, uh, let's say, a platypus. The depth of this mammal basin uh, corresponds to the extent to which meaning is incorporated in neural connectivity, uh, how redundant, uh, how strong the connections, and so on. So frequency, to some degree, trumps atypicality. So uh, whales, for example, are atypical mammals, but they're very frequent in our lives because we're fascinated and we talk about them a lot. Um, everybody knows a whole lot more about whales than they do about platypuses, so even though whales are kind of out near the edge of the, the mammal attractor basin, they have a great big deep sub-basin uh, to their own reflecting the frequency of whales. Now, we could ask, is this conceptualization of meaning, it seems pretty abstract, does it have any concrete counterpart? Well, it turns out that there's an enormous literature on this particular uh, type of uh, neurodegenerative disease called semantic aphasia that was started by John Hodges at uh, Addenbrooke's hospital in the early 90s, and he's since... uh, he quickly recruited a, a group of incredible people, including Carolyn Patterson, Matt Lamb and Ralph, uh, uh, Tim Rogers. Uh, they've collaborated heavily with Jay McClellan on the PDP end in, in this country, and I'm leaving out a whole bunch of other investigators. But what happens to semantics in people with semantic aphasia is very revealing and reflects back on this attractor basin model of mammals that uh, I've just talked about. So you could describe accurately what happens to patients with semantic aphasia who are losing neurons and losing connections in the temporal lobes, which are a particularly rich repository of a, a domain of semantic knowledge, and we'll get to that later. So in people with semantic dementia, remember I said that the depth of the, the mammal attractor basin reflects the extent to which knowledge is wired into neural connectivity. Well, these people are losing neural connectivity, so the effect is that the whole attractor basin becomes shallower and shallower. So several things happen with that. The the knowledge of things out at the periphery, like platypuses, just disappears. It just goes away. And even near the center of the attractor basin, where we have intrinsically stronger representations, but there are sub-basins, for example, within mammals, there might be a sub-basin uh, corresponding to dogs and sub-sub-basins uh, corresponding to certain uh, uh, types of dogs because of this increasing shallowness and attenuation of all these basins and subbasins, the semantic dementia patient becomes incapable of naming uh, particular subclasses of mammals, and they start to make characteristic slips that that reflect a shift from more peripheral and atypical forms to towards the center of the mammal basin to more typical forms, So they might look at a donkey and call it either a horse or slip all the way to the, the center of the basin and simply call it uh, an animal. Um, so uh, what these patients are doing is exactly what you would predict if you assume that semantic dementia corresponded in PDP terms to Gradual attenuation of this basin and the basin and all the subbasins becoming shallower and shallower, and ultimately a lot of subbasins completely uh, disappearing. Now w- we've been talking about meaning as if it, it had, in, in some sense, had was modally specific, but as as Warnicki uh, and others recognized almost 150 years ago. Meaning it reflects knowledge in multiple different modalities. I think that was most clearly uh, demonstrated by uh, Elizabeth Warrington in her work in the early 1980s, in which she showed category-specific deficits in in uh, knowledge of meaning. So patients, for example, with herpes simplex encephalitis, uh, a disorder which basically destroys the uh, inferior surfaces of the temporal lobes and out somewhat into the infralateral portions of the temporal lobe, uh, areas of the temporal lobe that are visual association cortex, so they support knowledge of uh, visual knowledge, the visual knowledge contribution to meaning. So. These patients, as Elizabeth Warrington and McCarthy showed, have a particular deficit in in comprehending and naming uh, living things. And if you think about it, our knowledge of living things is heavily weighted to our our visual knowledge about them, and we have this very, very strong uh, visual picture of animals. Uh, on the other hand, other domains of uh, other items, for example, tools, visual knowledge is important, but tools also have a component that we might call practical knowledge, kind of a uh, uh, a mind's hand knowledge of. Tool use and that will be spared in herpes simplex encephalitis, and so tools, knowledge of tools, is is not as severely affected in this disorder as knowledge of, of living things. Uh, Wernicke's idea that's and that's bare support from you know modern literature on on embodied cognition is really that the the best way to think about, for example, uh, a noun in the distribution of noun knowledge is that it has uh, a visual component. Uh, we can think of a dog and what a dog, our dog, or dogs in general look like. It has a uh, somatosensory component represented in somatosensory cortex um, that corresponds to the feeling of dog fur or cold dog nose or or wet dog tongue licking us, all those sorts of things. It has an olfactory component, uh, won't go into the details, not so pleasant for the most part. Uh, it has an acoustic component that sounds uh, whining or mewling or barking or whatever the dogs do. Um, one of the most important components is a limbic component, our feeling about dogs in general, our feelings about, uh, and memories about, uh, uh, emotional memories about uh, our own uh, dogs is an important uh, component. And all of these things are located in systems in very different parts of the brain. So visual knowledge, inferior, inferior lateral uh, temporal cortex, uh, somatosensory knowledge in uh, the postcentral gyrus and association, uh, sensory association cortices, limbic knowledge in, in limbic structures, acoustic knowledge and acoustic association cortices. And, and finally it is clear that that nouns have uh what i've referred to in the book as a predicative component and that is knowledge of what for example a dog will do so dogs uh, bark and run and and leap and they're you know friendly and loyal they have all of these characteristic behaviors so we could really think of those behaviors as being uh, part of the the meaning of dog, but at the same time those behaviors correspond to verbs that can be associated with that or that are frequently associated with that the meaning of that noun. So is there any experimental evidence to support that notion? Well there is. There's there's excellent studies out of uh, McRae's laboratory, this is some years ago, that have shown that nouns Uh, prime all of the verbs that are typically associated with them, and vice versa, that verbs prime the nouns that are typically associated with them. So it looks like when we conjure up the concept of dog in our mind, not only are these various noun-like representations engaged to one degree or another, and some of them not automatically, like Perhaps so, factory, but also the predicative component, which corresponds to all of the the, the verbs that are commonly associated with that that noun. So we, here we've got representations that pretty much uh, uh, are spread all over the brain, but are are linked to each other by extensive connectivity, uh, which introduces another idea that that basically the brain is is a connection machine. One of the rituals that neurology residents uh, go through in the course of their training is uh, a rotation on neuropathology and a neuropathology rotation is not complete without uh, brain cutting. You take a formal and preserved brain and using a huge sharp knife you, you slice it and anybody looking at those slices couldn't help but be struck by the fact that my goodness this thing is it's a big C of white matter with just a little thin rim of cortical gray matter and some some relatively modestly sized subcortical gray matter structures. But most of it is white matter. That is, most of it is is connections. So even though we've known that forever, as long as we've been examining brains, it turns out to be... A, a really revealing clue about what the heck is the brain is about, and that really is op- operating as a, a connection machine. Now, all of these things that be, we've been talking about with nouns have their counterpart with with verbs. All verbs, to one degree or another, um, uh, are linked to a plan and plan, plan creation, plan selection, plan execution is the province of the the frontal lobes. And as we put together any kind of plan, including a plan to produce a sentence, uh, it involves imputing roles to the actors in the plan, in linguistic terms, uh, thematic roles, and Probably the thematic role component of verbs is is one of the most important components as reflected in aphasia studies which since the late 40s have shown that, that patients with large uh, anterior lesions predominantly affecting the frontal lobe have particular problems with with verbs. They do much better with nouns than they do with verbs with, with few exceptions. So clearly I mean, when a verb is linked to a noun, not only does it add meaning about a particular action, but the linking of that verb to that noun also further modifies the noun representation by defining whether it's an agent or patient or theme or or whatever. So that's one component of verbs. They have another component that I've I've used the term flavor in the book to encompass two common concepts in the linguistic literature. One is manner, and one is pathway. And I'll speak mostly to manner because uh, manner is incorporated into verbs in, in English, whereas other languages, most notably Greek, incorporate primarily path uh, information. So manner, for example, take a word like walk. Well. There are all kinds of different manners of walking flavors in the term I've used. So you can saunter, you can strut, strut you can sachet, you can march, you can hasten, you can meander. English really has, has a fascination with walking and all of these terms that basically mean the same thing, but definitely have a different flavor. That knowledge, as as really pretty convincingly shown by uh, a marvelous, marvelous uh, functional imaging study by David Kemmerer, is represented predominantly in in dominant uh, lateral and inferior uh, temporal lobe. So, So now we've got a component of verb representations in frontal lobe that has to do with the assignment of thematic roles. We've got a component in in temporal cortex that has to do with uh, verb flavor, manner, uh, and pathway information is likely more dorsal. It hasn't been studied explicitly as to localization. Uh, But there's other components, too, and this is where we, we really come back fully to embodied cognition, and that is that, that action verbs have what I refer to as an implementational component that is represented in, of all places, motor cortex. And we have now extensive studies that have all said the, the, the same thing. So, for uh, example, if somebody is uh, in an experimental paradigm is performing Uh, some kind of, of action, and an action involving hand, and simultaneously they say a verb that not only involves hand movement, but involves a hand movement that is contrary to the movement required to perform this task, task performance will be disrupted. In patients with Parkinson's disease who, because of their disease, have Uh, When they're in the off state, not enough dopamine, they have dysfunction of the motor cortex. In the on state, repetition priming of nouns and verbs is fine, perfectly normal. In the off state, repetition priming of nouns is still fine, but verbs is diminished, reflecting the fact that this implementational component of verb meaning The the component that is supported by motor cortex is now rendered dysfunctional because there's not enough dopamine and therefore they're motorically uh, impaired. So we've got components of uh, this grand distributed verb representation that are frontal, uh, prefrontal cortex, motor cortex, and sensory cortex, I I cited mainly uh, visual, but we could consider uh, the possibility of analogs and somatosensory and, and acoustic. Uh, so verb representations are uh, all components of verb representations are, are all over the place um, and linked to each other by all of these connections back to the connection machine and this huge mass of white matter that is the, the, uh, the human brain. Now, I mentioned the predicative component of nouns, which actually corresponds to the verbs that are commonly linked through experience, through the regularities of our language to the distributed noun representation, but verbs, too, have a nominative component that reflects the fact that verbs will prime the nouns that they're typically associated uh, with, and so they have that link to to noun representation. So to that extent, noun and verb representations are inseparable and it's not hard to see how simply this semantic relationship between nouns and verbs comprises uh, a really important uh, component of of grammar, uh, certainly at the, the simple phrasal level, like an, an example I used in the in the book, uh, "The old man shot the burglar." I mean, other than the English convention of SVO (subject verb object), uh, everything quote grammatical in that sentence is actually semantic, and it revolves around the the relationship between shot old man, uh, burglar, and the ways in which shot modifies old man to become shooter old man and modifies the burglar concept to become shot burglar.
0: We're not going to have time here to uh, go into the full details of the syntactic component of the model. So um, in what time we have, I'd like to ask, if I may, a question about the, if you like, the validation of a model of this kind. As far as the aphasia data is concerned, it seems that the PDP models are very successful in emulating behavior because they exhibit graceful degradation and they behave stochastically, as you discuss. But because particular lesion patterns are highly idiosyncratic, it's obviously rather difficult to model any particular individual. In a similar vein earlier, we discussed language universals, uh, and in those domains it could be argued that um, a PDP model has the potential to over-predict That is, it doesn't necessarily bring out statistical universals, although, of course, that may not be important for reasons that you discuss. What sort of data would you consider critical for evaluating the success of of your model going forward?
1: Well, in the book, I I talked about uh, quite a large number of uh, empirical studies uh, in aphasic patients, patients rendered aphasic either by stroke or dementing disorders of various types—Alzheimer's disease, disease uh, semantic dementia—and in total, uh, all of those studies provide two things. One is they they certainly provide validation of this PDP concept and what happens in the course of processes, destruction of of neural tissue buffered by graceful degradation, the fact that when you damage a, a PDP model because knowledge is distributed throughout the, the network, that uh, the probability of a correct response is reduced, but the model doesn't just shut down and Uh, It doesn't start producing bizarre things that are not reflective of already what it already knows. It simply has a higher probability of error, a higher probability of producing uh, no response uh, at all. Now, I would say that in, in looking at all of this literature, Uh, Almost none of it was motivated by uh, a PDP conceptualization of brain function. Most of this literature was motivated by uh, linguistic hypotheses. And so I ended up looking at these papers and basically bypassing all the the theoretical buildup and looking at the the data. And if the authors had been sufficiently revealing about the data, uh, I was able to apply it to the model and to this book. But that's potentially a weakness. And and so there's really a need for uh, people to attack the model uh, by doing experiments that are explicitly leveled uh, at uh, the model, uh, explicitly test its uh, assumptions and its theoretical predictions. Existing literature has also done something else, and I think this is best revealed in the section on, on the verb past tense. So the model, as I've discussed, provides the the general conceptual basis for understanding verb past tense. And I was feeling pretty comfortable with uh, the whole verb uh, uh, past tense until I came uh, across some uh, papers in the German uh, literature. And just to explain the significance of those papers in, in, uh, in English, what the the literature has has uh, shown um is that um with uh lesions of the of the left uh brain that the, the most regular past tense forms tend to be preserved but the german studies showed that it was irregular uh past tense uh uh, forms that uh, tended to be uh, preserved. So the question was, how on earth could we uh, account for this disparity? And in looking at that, uh, at, at that literature, I thought back to uh, data that uh, existed on uh, heavily inflected languages uh, in general. And those data really provide strong evidence that in richly inflected languages, there is particularly extensive representation of uh, morphology and morphologic sequence knowledge in the non-dominant hemisphere. So we think see things, for example, in Turkish and Hungarian, which are elaborately marked agglutinative uh, languages where nouns and verbs have up to uh, four uh, grammatic morphological tags that are appended as, as suffixes that in aphasic patients in those languages they always produce those classes of endings, and they always produce them in the right order. They may make selection errors, but that's the worst they do. The, the order of those things is always preserved. And in, in counterpart to English, where phrase structure rules are are always honored in in aphasia, however however devastating the lesion, so. Uh, the differences that we see in in German in in verb past tense phenomenology reflect the larger representation of morphologic sequence knowledge uh, in the non-dominant hemisphere in German, a uh, uh, richly inflected languages. So, in thinking initially about the verb past tense, I, uh, I had not thought about this idea that there might be uh, differences in richly inflected language that, that occurred as a result of the, the greater degree of representation of morphologic sequence knowledge in the non-dominant hemisphere in these languages. So, more generally, these experiments enabled uh, an extension of the overall model into a domain that had that I had not initially anticipated But that ultimately was consistent with other components of the model, uh, but was definitely an elaboration of the model. So I think that there's the devil, again, is always in the details, and there's uh, enormous uh, opportunities for uh, extending this model and increasing uh, the detail of the model through, particularly through further cross-linguistic studies of, of aphasia, and that that will be done uh, and yield things that that I really hadn't uh, dreamt of, but, but I feel confident w- will be reconcilable with the basic
0: structure of the model. In conclusion, then, you identify in the final chapter a number of avenues for further exploration. Are there any that you're working on yourself at the moment, and uh, what will strike you as the most productive way forward?
1: <laughs> well, I, I'm actually one of the, the my career problems is I'm interested in too many things. Um, so, so actually, at the moment, I'm devoting my greatest efforts to white matter uh, issues. Um, uh, it turns out that in stroke in humans uh, most parasites stems from not from a cortical lesion but from a white matter lesion and that in turn uh, has some implications for treatment because it it looks generally that uh, doing things to reduce white matter damage or to encourage white matter uh, growth uh, are closer to our reach than uh, rebuilding a six-layer cerebral cortex. Uh, but it turns out that the same white matter lesions uh, in stroke that cause paralysis also damage crossing colossal fibers. And going back to this idea that there's a lot of language to one degree or another represented in the right hemisphere, that means that recovery from aphasia uh, entails not just... Recovery of surviving neural neural networks in the left hemisphere, but it involves uh, an interaction between surviving tissue and the the, the right hemisphere and if you 've got a colossal lesion uh, that interaction can't occur but this whole idea that Uh, stroke commonly cause uh, a a partial callosotomy, a partial destruction of the corpus callosum. Uh, That concept, to my knowledge, has has never been been expressed, but it could be quite important to recovery from aphasia. It might be very important in uh, praxis, which is often disordered with left hemisphere strokes. It, It is also true that strokes affecting language causing aphasia while they certainly destroy cerebral cortex to one degree or another, uh, may even more uh, destroy immediately uh, subcortical white matter. And it may be possible that if we can mitigate white matter damage or promote white matter recovery, uh, even though that wouldn't help the damaged cortex, it might improve language function by virtue of uh, improving uh, white matter Uh, connectivity. There's very little known about these uh, connections. Um, Wernicke and much, much later uh, in in the the 60s, Norman Geschwind really drew attention to the arcuate fasciculus uh, posited to, to link acoustic representations with articulatory motor representations, and that's certainly a terribly important white matter pathway, but gone absolutely unstudied are connections that must exist between substrates for meaning and substrates for uh, phonology and and for uh, a morphologic sequence knowledge in the Perisylvian area. I mean, surely there's – I mean, we know that meaning is generated in these association cortices all over – The brain, very many of them, very distant from the perisylvian area. Uh, We know that language is emerging from processes in the perisylvian area. So those those two domains must be linked. We have some evidence of damage to those connections, which I refer to the in in the book as the fan arrays. Uh, But clearly. These fan rays, these white matter pathways that that fan out from perisylvian cortex to the whole hemisphere uh, must be extremely important to language function. And if to one degree or another we could uh, rescue them through neurobiologic interventions, uh, that might be very helpful
0: uh, in enabling a recovery from aphasia. I would love to talk about these topics for another hour, but, so that would, <laughs> but that would deprive you of an hour in which you could be working on them. And solve that. So let me just say, Steve Nade, uh, thank you very much for your time.
1: You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Chris.
0: I've been talking to Stephen Nado Nadeau about neural architecture of grammar. This is Chris Cummins from New Books and Language saying thank you.